Hi, this is Doug Conan, author of The Blueprint, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive. Joining me today is Doug Conant. Doug is the founder and CEO of Conant Leadership, which is dedicated to helping improve the quality of leadership in the 21st century. He is passionate about employee engagement and firmly believes in the importance of coming up with your own leadership model. He was appointed president and CEO of Campbell Soup Company in 2001. He joined Campbell with 25 years experience from three of the world's leading food companies, General Mills, Kraft, and Nabisco, and retired as CEO as Campbell's CEO. He's now a sought-after speaker on leading with integrity and other business topics as the co-author of the New York Times best-selling book, Touchpoints, Creating Powerful Leadership connections in the smallest of moments, which he discussed on episode 116 of My Quest for the Best. Doug lives in Philadelphia, PA, and is here to talk about his new book, The Blueprint, Six Practical Steps to Lift Your Leadership to New Heights. Welcome, Doug. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be with you. It's so great to be with you. Tell me, since you've been a guest before, talk about a quote that guides your leadership of your business or yourself these days. I have many quotes from Stephen Covey, and quote guides my thinking at the highest level is this quote from Stephen where he said, Doug, things that matter most must never be at the mercy of things that matter least. I have to check myself every day to make sure I'm working on the things that matter most. I can so easily get seduced into creating a checklist of things that I can get done because they don't matter much. Instead, I end up pursuing them at the expense of the important things. That's probably the quote that guides my thinking as much, if not more than any other. Can you give me an example of a way that you change what was on your list or changed your project planning once you remember that sometime recently? When I was a CEO and chairman and every morning I would get up before the sunrise and go sit out in my garden with a cup of coffee while the sun came. I would very intentionally reflect on, okay, what are the important things that I need to get done today and this week? I started that practice, a very intentional practice of thinking explicitly, thinking about what matters most for the day and the week to keep Keep myself on track. As a leader today, I don't care if you're a CEO or a manager with three people working for you. Fundamentally, you feel like you're trying to get a sip of water from the fire hydrant of life. It's just all washing over you. I tend to want to pick things off so I feel like I got something done today. And and so I can get seduced into working on the wrong things. So I had a very intentional practice of reflecting on it over my coffee as the sun came up in the morning before anyone else other than maybe the dog and the two cats were up with me as our kids were growing. To this day, I am still an early riser and I still do reflect on what matters most as part of a habit I've cultivated so that I'm I'm staying focused. So that's a personal habit that I actually did today. I was up, I'm in Chicago talking to you right now. I flew here from Philadelphia and I was up at four o'clock in the morning thinking about, okay, what if I got going this week? What's important? What am I going to be focused on? It would have been five o'clock had I been in Philadelphia. Unfortunately, it was a little early. And then on top of the time, change. As a result, I'm a little tired today. But that's a practice I have, and I commend it to anyone who's really trying to stay on top of the things that matter most. What I notice is I imagine you sitting, watching the sunrise, maybe with a dog with you and a cup of coffee. 
I notice what's in your hand is a cup of coffee, not a phone, not reading email. You're making a decision and reflecting on what you want to accomplish based upon what's already on your agenda, what's already in your mind, commitments that you've made without looking at what's coming in, what's new, what might be trivial, and that might be distracting to you. That's where I start. This is something I put words around when I worked with Stephen Covey, gosh, going on 30 years ago now. I like to think of the big picture and then figure out where all the pieces fit. So it's hard to think of the big picture when you're on email or when you're checking your texts. So I do that, but I'm always starting out with what matters most, and I'm thinking about that. Then I will go in and deal with the granular nature of life, which is all this stuff coming in. I'm an old retired guy now, but I'm still getting flooded with emails and texts every day because I'm still very active. I think you want to start out thinking of what matters most, and then you dive into the granularity because life is granular, and that's just the reality. And so as a leader, you got to manage that granularity, but you also have to keep it in. What was your motivation, if not aspiration, in writing the blueprint? We did our discussion around touch points quite a while ago now. With the first book, I observed with my co-author, Meta Norgard, that the world was speeding up. This was a decade ago. The world was speeding up and that if you really wanted to be highly effective as a leader, you had to be very fluent in the smallest of moments because brief interactions, we weren't You didn't have two hours to sit and talk with someone of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You had to get the job done. Life fundamentally has been, and increasingly so today, was made up of 200 to 400 interactions in it. What we discovered as we got into it was you had to be incredibly fluent with those short, brief interactions if you wanted to have impact on your organization. It was how you managed small moments, not the big ones, and how consistently you managed them. So that was our first book. It made the New York Times bestseller list. It continues to sell today. It's a powerful story. However, in order to be fluent in those moments, you actually need to have your act together, and you have to know what you stand for and how you want to walk in the world. What we found was, as we were working with people, is they were trying to deal with quick fix solutions and being very fluent in moments, but they weren't really well anchored in how they wanted to show up as leaders. I think today, leaders have to have the courage of their convictions. And quite frankly, most leaders haven't thought about their convictions. So it's hard to be courageous. And so the blueprint is dedicated to leaders who really want to get well anchored in how they want to show up so that they can be highly fluent in those small moments. So this is all about getting your arms around, how can I be the best version of myself that I want to be when I'm leading others? And I don't think there's any one way to do it. Of all the leaders I've seen, and there have been hundreds and hundreds of them, no two are the same. And so what I've observed is they all tap into sort of their life story and draw lessons from it. That influences how they want to show up with others as leaders. And I was on a podcast with Brene Brown this spring. She has this great quote, which is basically, and I'll top line it. She says, you can either walk inside your story and own it, or you can walk outside of your story and hustle for your worthiness every day. Most leaders I see are trying to live the story that their boss wants to write for them, or their parents wanted to write for them, or their grandparents, or their coach, or their professor. They're all trying to meet the needs of others. They haven't really examined what's their story and how do they want to walk in the world. That's a daunting thing. So we came up with the idea for the blueprint to literally create a process where within a couple weeks, you can get anchored in how you want to show up and then you can start to bring it to life in a very practical way because I'm a very practical guy. 
guy. It's been a wild and wonderful journey. I, I just had a Blueprint boot camp last week and working with, I don't know, maybe 36 leaders. And to see the light bulbs go on and see them actually find out that they don't have to be somebody else at work. They can actually be themselves and be much more effective and do it in a more fulfilling way. We're going to get to the boot camp, which is a separate process from the yeah. book in just a moment. But I'd, I'd love to get your observations and insights into when you talk with leaders. One of the things that's true, as I read the blueprint, is that you emphasize that it's not just that a blueprint is necessary, but we are the author and architect and designer of our own blueprint. The same way that we design our day and our week by making commitments and blocking things out on our calendar, we could design the way that we literally show up and what we want to stand for. We get to choose that at any moment based on our own values and based on our own beliefs. Well said. I believe that in my bones. I believe your life story is your leadership story. And every leader I talk to inevitably has a story of someone who had a profound influence on them, their life, that has that they carry with them to this very day. It could be some a grandmother or a grandfather. Very rarely is it a boss, interestingly. It could be a coach or a teacher, minister, rabbi, whoever it is. So this notion of you have to be the author of your own story. Nobody can write this story for you. I've studied all the great leaders over my whole life. When I majored in political science at Northwestern University, I studied political leaders and then U.S. leaders and then world leaders. Then I went into business and got my MBA and I studied business leaders. I've been studying leaders for over 40 years now in earnest. They're all unique. And their leadership story has been powerfully influenced by their life story. Can you recall talking with another leader that you've had many conversations with different leaders of companies and other areas, and all of a sudden you realized how much of leadership is our own personal story because it just occurred again for the umpteenth time and suddenly you had an insight. My gosh, it's not about what we learned in business school. It's what we learned on the ball field in life, growing up, making sure that everyone had an equal share when you prepared a meal, all these lessons that people would refer to and that you personally got to gain an insight. Can you remember a gestalt moment when you suddenly realized it is all personal? I was working with a young lady, Mary, just this past week, who's head of HR for a major league baseball team. We were working with all these folks, trying to help them get into their life story and what really mattered to them. She had just this epiphany. She said, this is amazing to me. All these things that matter most to me, I have on the sidelines of my work life. I'm trying to live to work, but I'm not bringing my best self to work every day. I have all these amazing lessons that have really formed who I am and how I show up as a mother and a partner and a family member. Somehow I've put them in the parking lot when I go to work. I hear that all the time. It just reaffirms for me that, in fact, if you really want to have a fulfilling leadership experience, you've got to bring all of yourself to work, not just what you think is required by the job. What she decided to do was create a different level of vulnerability at work. She was determined to go share all of herself with the people with whom she worked, as opposed to just being focused on the business issues of the day. So she was going to open herself up in the spirit of Brene Brown. She was going to be vulnerable and create a conversation with these other executives. She's a very young lady, and she's in a male-dominated culture in professional baseball, and uh, she's incredibly talented. She's trying to play with the men, man, and uh, that was that's not her. So she said, I've got to, she just realized she had to be true to herself. She had to lead by example. So she 
was committed to sharing more of herself with the people at work. And we actually went through a few ways she could do that. So she, we always try and drive for specific, we encourage people in the book to look for specific practices they can use to accomplish their goals, small practices that can make big differences. She identified a couple of practices where she was just going to start showing up and sharing more of herself, her whole self at work. From the reader's perspective, reading a book is, say, a half-day commitment, more or less. Mm -hmm. Going through the blueprint is a multi-day commitment because you've written it as a work Workshop. You really ask people to think and reflect, and that takes time to do. My question for you is, many leaders today believe that they don't have time to respond even to emails. What needs to change so that people can become more effective leaders and realize that they do have the time to invest in something like this? And it's imperative to take a break out of doing the work. As Michael Gerber says, don't just work in the business, work on the business. People can't just be a manager or a leader but they have to work on developing their management and leadership skills and insights and abilities. What do you have to say to people who, who really don't believe that they have the time to do this? We wrote the book to help people get unstuck. On the cover, we say get unstuck. So this book is written for people who feel stuck. It's written through a very practical lens. You don't have to go to, to get your MBA to get unstuck. You need to spend time with yourself, on yourself, within a matter of a week, you could go through this exercise. We have people go through the that we work with. They go through an abbreviated version, and it takes about four hours of reflective work. Maybe if you spend, you go through the whole, the first half of our book is probably, you could do eight to 10 hours of reflective work in there. And that's it. You and I know that it takes, let's say, a day to really go through and do this. But how do we help people understand the need to make the commitment to spend a day because they may feel like they're stuck? They can't possibly take a day out to do this? How do you help them get out of that conundrum? I, I would say they've got to have an appetite for changing the game. There are no quick fixes here. You behaved your way into a rut in your leadership life, and you sort of have to behave your way out of it. It takes time. What we've done is make it about as approachable as anybody could make it. If you really want to change your leadership life, this isn't about studying about other people. This is just about spending time on yourself. We find that is worthwhile for a whole host of reasons, not just leadership reasons. It's not like you've got to read a book and study about Thomas Jefferson or, or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. This is all about you and harvesting the life lessons that you've had in your life that you want to carry with you as you go forward. So I would argue one of, it's very approachable. One of the ideas that you share in the book is that advancing your purpose is how effective you'll be and honoring your beliefs is about how authentic you'll be. What makes this insight valuable for leaders to adopt in your experience from feedback from the book as well as from the boot camp experience? With, well, I would tell yeah. you, most leaders are leading life by the seat of their pants. I did too. Even to this day, probably 70% of my day is by the seat of my pants, just reacting to what's coming my way and trying to hold the world at bay and get along. So I get that. But if any leader you talk to, they have a plan for everything. They have a plan for how they deliver the quarter. You have a plan for how you're going to run your podcast. They all have plans. If I talk to them about what's your plan for your leadership, they have no idea. And I would argue that's probably the single most important thing they should be working on. They look at me with a blank stare. 
Where do you start with a plan? What are we trying to accomplish? What's my purpose? So I think you have to think about why do I want to lead and how do I want to show up? I can't imagine leading if you haven't wrestled with that some so that you're really well anchored. So to me, it all starts with purpose. Every organization has a reason for being, has a purpose. I think every leader ought to have the same thing. Doug, tell me, when you were coming up through the ranks, did you have anyone who modeled or encouraged you to reflect on what your values were, what your beliefs were to help you become a more effective leader? The answer is yes and no, mostly no. We counted up one time. I had 28 bosses in my life. One time. Well, it felt like it sometimes, but I had 28 people I reported to. And I typically would have to work with the people they reported to also. So I had exposure to 56 bosses and three were good. The other 53 were fair to not good. So I didn't have a lot of great examples. With those two sets, you have three that were good, were effective, that were memorable in those ways. Say 53 that weren't. What are a couple commonalities of the three that were good and things that people should think of doing and emulating? What were some commonalities of the 53 that were bad that come to mind that people should avoid doing to be more effective as a leader and manager? The three that were good, I've observed this everywhere, but three that were good, I would say had a couple of characteristics. One was they realized leadership was all about the people. Leaders need followers and and the effective leaders understand that if that in order for the people that are following them to care about their agenda, that leader needs to demonstrate that they care about the agenda of their followers. So that they had to care, they had to evidence it. The second thing I would say would be they were really tough-minded on standard of performance, and they were also tender-hearted with people. Not one or the other, but both. They were able to hold both of those ideas at the same time. They had very high standards for performance, but I knew they had my back and they wanted to see me reach those standards. And if I didn't, they were there, they would assume that I'd given my best effort and they were there to help. That is what I think is probably the most important thing for a leader today. You Look, if you want to lead, you have to have high standards for performance or you won't be leading very long. I don't care if you're in a small company, a big company, you got to perform, you got to deliver. But at the same time, if your delivery of performance is dependent on others, they damn well better know that you care about them. If you want them to stick with you in an enduring, you can just have a revolving door and bring in new people all the time, but it's not an effective way to run a railroad. The organizations I see performing, the small organizations and mid-sized ones that I see performing are ones that have created powerful cultures that have high standards and where the people feel they're part of a special community making a special contribution. Can you share an example of a company you've worked with that emulates this and describe them for me? Stanley at the Dental Supply Company. He's been there for 40 years. He is the CEO, but the he's been the CEO for over 30 years. And because the the founder suddenly passed away and he sort of had to take over and he was not prepared to take over. He he was asked to by the family and he did. So he's been the CEO there for over 30 years. How large? It's a multi-billion dollar company now, but it's grown through acquisition. And when it started, it was very small. Now he's got a global company that's multi-billion dollar company. But when he started, I believe it was less than, a, it was maybe, it was certainly less than a hundred million dollar company. He has built it through through organic growth and acquisition. But the key to him, they call themselves a team. 
they become a big team, but it was always team and the name of the company. As they get bigger and bigger, they just value this team spirit and this commitment to community and this commitment to each other, which just transcends the ordinary. And the CEO is, he walks the talk. He models the behavior. He does what I would call, he does a Gandhi. He wants to be, he wants to be the change that he wants to see in the world. He's incredible. He's incredibly humble and self-effacing and determined to see his team thrive and endure well beyond his time with the organization. He's modeling that kind of tough-minded on standards, we've got to perform, and this incredible commitment to the community that they're creating at work. Something that he does to show his caring that probably isn't common practice in many businesses. I run a program up in Boston at the Center for Higher Ambition Leadership, and he became one of the founding companies and sends his folks there, and he shows up there all the time. And we've developed many of his leaders. And he is right there with us, supporting the learning of his people. He's very supportive of learning and development of his team at all levels. So they know that he's in it to get performance, but he wants them to feel valued. He wants to give them an opportunity to learn and grow. He also is very committed to a a very lofty ambition for the company. I wish I could remember the mission, but it transcends the ordinary. So The people there just feel they're in a special place that values them. He's going to ride this pandemic out just fine. You hear about the great resignation. It's not going to happen in that company. One of the things that I I think about with companies that have such a clearly articulated mission is that it makes it easier to align with what they stand for. You could identify with how you'll grow in order to help the company succeed with its goals. And it just makes it easier when it's so much front and center rather than on a poster in the back in the break. I couldn't agree with you more. The reality is that as there's Warren Bennis back in 1987 created this phrase, uh, it's saying it's a VUCA world, V-U-C-A, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. That was in 1987. Today, we would say it's a VUCA world on steroids. So you have plans, but plans are going to have to change every day. If you have a higher calling or a sense of purpose or mission that transcends the ordinary, that's unchanging. So that's where you get the rudder in the water as an organization because it's not around plans and tactics because it's too volatile an environment. I would argue if you want to win in an enduring way as a small company or mid-sized company, you've got to have a a powerful sense of purpose that transcends. Doug, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Let's do it. We talked about a quote that guides you today and you talked about the timeless Stephen Covey. Don't let major things interfere with minor things. The priorities are important. What is a play or a song that you see exemplifying good leadership or that inspires good leadership based upon its content? I'll tell you, it's going to sound corny, but I'm a pretty corny guy. I had to come up with my favorite song on my Brene Brown podcast, and it's Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. It's basically man's search for meaning. It's basically saying, remember what's important. So, My favorite song is Amazing Grace. What was something that you learned in writing the book? It's a huge process. You worked on it with a new co-author, with Amy Fetterman. What did you learn in the process and your collaboration with Amy that changed your view of leadership or of how leaders evolve as you created the book? I learned the importance of staying open-minded. You end up, when you're 
writing on your own, you tend to get locked into a point of view. And Amy and I are very different people. I'm an old man, just turned 70. Amy's a 30-something gifted writer. She would challenge the thinking. And as a result, I think the quality of the output was much better because of the toing and froing we did in the collaboration process. I'm a big believer in collaboration and collaborating with Amy was a real gift, as was collaborating with Meta Norgard when I wrote the first. I think in both cases, the books were... You don't have the personality, but I'm sure you could relate to leaders who have the personality that would simply say, no, that's how I want it to be, and just simply put their foot down and be close-minded to changes and suggestions that others make, especially a collaborator in a book. What is it that allows you to stay open to people challenging your ideas and looking for what's going to yield the best idea or expression or method or tool so that it benefits the user? What is it that allows you to be open to that? I think it's not about me. It's about having my whole approach to what I do is whatever I'm working on, I want the best imaginable outcome. My whole life, I've learned that I'm better off with input than without it. That having been said, when I have to make a decision, I'll make a decision based on the information I have and I'll stand by it. But in my opinion, humility should rule the day and then a fierce resolve to do what's best for the enterprise. By the way, when Jim Collins wrote Good to Great and developed his level five leadership model around the companies that were truly great over an extended period of time, 20 years, the two distinctive characteristics he identified were humility and fierce resolve. I'm not putting myself in that category, but I find that combination very attractive. What would you say is the best advice you ever received? What would you say is the worst advice you ever received? When I got fired from my job a thousand years ago, I was 32 years old. Fortunately, I've only been fired once. You never want to go through that more than once. Uh, Terrible situation. I was fired and they sent me to an outplacement counselor. I called him. His name was Neil McKenna. He said, hello, this is Neil McKenna. How can I help? This is before caller ID or cell phones. I'm old. And every time I would talk to him, nearly 20 years, he became a mentor of mine. He would answer the phone, not knowing who was on the other end of the phone and say, how can I help? He was just there to be helpful. I found that man mindset so incredibly appealing that I've adopted it. And so this notion of having a servant leadership mindset of how can I help is where I start. And if I need to assert a point of view, I will, but I'm there to help. As a result, people tend to want to talk to me as opposed to me telling them what to do. They're looking for help and I'd like to be available. So carrying a how can I help mindset is probably the lesson that had the most profound influence on me. What would you say is the worst advice you ever received, even if it was well-meaning? When I worked for KKR and RJR Nabisco, we were the world's largest LBO. It was an incredibly difficult situation in the 90s. Our mission was e-earnings, and it was like we were missing the point. We were trying to get the golden egg, but we were killing the goose. All the people that were trying to produce those golden eggs. I learned from what the way we approached it there that there has to be a better way and that you have to focus on winning in the workplace first if you want to win in the marketplace in an enduring way. We were just trying to win in the work in the marketplace, but at the expense of the workplace. And that's just, that's a flawed idea. I learned it over 10 years working within KKR. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I, when you retire, 
you tend to be attracted to all these shiny opportunities that you never could consider when you were working. So I was attracted to a lot of shiny opportunities that looked interesting that I could learn and maybe I could be helpful. I learned that I was overextended. And I've and so what I've done is I've curtailed a lot of my practices. I'm really focusing on the things that where I can really make a difference that are fulfilling for me. So I'm tightening up my focus. I, I had scope creep on my work. What I've learned is personally, I just need to focus on what matters most again. And it's a never ending battle. So that's the practice I've had. I'm really questioning what I'm working on. That brings us full circle. You have been so generous in sharing your ideas and perspectives from a great vantage point, starting with Stephen Covey, who you've had direct training and and coaching with. So that reminding us that what matters most should never be at the mercy of what matters least. We talked about Mary, who worked at the Major League Baseball organization and who wasn't bringing her whole self to work and how much was missing as a result of that. We talked about what's important for leadership and leadership is really all about people and you need followers in order to be a leader. If you show that you care about other people's agendas, that's the fastest way to have them care about your agenda and success, but it really has to be done. It can't just be lip service. We shared about so many ideas uh, and discussed so many ideas today, Doug. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you for having me. It's always it's good to see you again, a fellow Philadelphian, and uh, you're doing important work and you're sharing it with an important audience who has really been hit hard by this pandemic. I admire the work you're doing and I wish all your listeners well. I want to share the quote from Mark Beinoff, the Salesforce CEO, that said that life grows relative to one's investment in it. You have shown us the result of making the investment of time and energy in investing in your life and your leadership. So once again, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. But before we say goodbye, where could people listening to this find out more about you and your work? Well, they should just go to ConantLeadership.com, our website, and learn about what we do. I take no salary for this work. Most everything we do is free. We're just trying to help leaders who are facing real challenges today lift their games in a way that works for them. Doug, we're going to link to ConantLeadership.com. And in the show notes, we're going to link to places to buy the book, as well as all of your social media to make it super easy for people who are listening to this show to find you and keep up with your thoughts and what other leaders become more effective at their work and, as you say, lift their game. Once again, Doug Conant, author of The Blueprint, Six Practical Steps to Lift Your Leadership to New Heights. I want to thank you for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.